This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? Today is December 14th, 2022. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the very famous and insanely wealthy Simon Belanger. <laughs> We're going deep into the thesaurus of names here for Mr. Belanger. Now, Simon, we got a, a good episode today. We're going to talk about all kinds of frameworks, some famous investors, some listener questions, and I'm going to go into a deep dive on it. If you stick around, a stock that I recently trimmed, which is something I don't very often do, and my thought process around that. How are you doing this morning? Did you do your morning stretching? This is a morning yeah. recording. Has the stretching been crossed off? Stretching has been done, so I'm all, uh, you know, I'm nimble <laughs> as a uh, 32-year-old. <laughs> Dude, you are very dedicated yeah. to your craft of stretching. I'll kick today's show off with something I thought was interesting I saw on the internet, which was a part of a book called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. I know it's quite popular. I have not read it. So it's called Fooled by Randomness by Nassim Taleb. And someone pointed out an illustration, a guy on Twitter, MT Capital, shout out to him. He's actually a Canadian lad, good lad. And it shows a table. And what it means is if you on average, check your portfolio on a certain frequency, what is the probability you will have seen a gain on the market? So if you check once a year, typically 93%. Every quarter, 77. Every month, 67. Every day, 54. Every hour, 51. Every minute, 50.17. And every second is basically just flip a coin. And so this is using a hypothetical portfolio with a 15% annual return and a 10% standard deviation. So if you, if those numbers seem high, like a year of gains happening every 93%, that's because this portfolio is doing 15% on an annual return. So it's not the market. So it's a, it's a very good performing portfolio. But it just goes to show the less you open your brokerage, the more likely you are to think you're on the right track. You know what I mean? It's like if you check your portfolio every day and you are crushing the market with this amazing portfolio, basically flip a coin. Every month, every quarter, still, you you could just see red You know, almost half the time. So you have to zoom out and remember that in the short term, this is not where gains are made. And, and that's why the book, I guess, is called Fooled by Randomness. Because this mathematically can fool an investor into thinking that they're either doing something really right or something really wrong when they're actually just being fooled by short-term randomness. So I thought it was an interesting uh, little statistic to bring up on today's show. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I like that you just said the caveat of 15% annual returns. As I was yeah. saying the numbers, I'm like, <laughs> hmm, 
this seems high. Yeah. Let's just say, I mean, I think that's probably a little unrealistic, the 15%, but I think that, you know, the spirit of the post and the book, I think is just to show that to me is just sample sizing, right? So if you have a, a very small sample, meaning that you're checking very frequently, then the probability of seeing gains become much lower. And then if your sample size gets bigger, 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 and I mean, I can imagine if you're getting 15% a year annual return on average, if you look every five years, it's probably near 100% and 10 years, it's probably 100%, right? So I think it's just, yeah, it's kind of if you understand probabilities, I think that makes a whole lot of sense. There has never been a rolling 20 years in the history of public markets that you've seen a negative return on any rolling period ever. And so that gives you some important context on, yeah, there's randomness on the short term, but over the long the long haul, that kind of sorts itself out statistically. Yeah, no, exactly. So I guess we'll go on to one of the, it's not a listener question. This was a question that I got from a friend a few months ago uh, around Thanksgiving time. And my friend asked me, about a specific situation. I won't say his name and obviously I won't say the company I'll be referring to just because I don't want to single him out. But he's been with his company for a while, which is what most people would consider a blue chip company. And that blue chip company is listed in Canada. He's been with a company for years, has accumulated a lot of stock through an employee stock purchase plan, where his employer will match up to a certain amount of stock that he buys for their stock. So that's not uncommon for public companies to offer a, a matching program like that. It's a bit similar, I guess, to some companies where they'll do a pension plan or defined contribution matching. Some will offer stock if they're publicly listed. He's done extremely well over the period of time with this plan. Just for context, the stock in question has almost had double the returns of the S&P 500 over the past five years, and it's better the further you look. It is listed on the TSX, so needless to say that it's crushed the S&P TSX. So obviously, that is affecting his reasoning a little bit, and now he was asking me if he should sell some of his stock because the price has been a bit volatile recently and that he could sell just a part of it to pay off his mortgage. So what I started by asking him, I'm like, okay, well... Do you-, you know this whole time I'm like trying to do the yeah. math on which yeah. ticker it is. And I, I, I think I have a pretty, I think I have a pretty I good I can guess. tell you offline, <laughs> you know, yeah, just uh, I can tell you offline which company. And I think, I don't know if you'll have guessed it, but it pays a dividend. I'll just say that. Not a big dividend. Oh, yeah. okay. I was wrong then. Okay. I'm back to the okay. drawing board. Okay. okay. So uh, one second while I just go look up more tickers. <laughs> so the first question, I asked him two questions. So do you have a pension? And he said that no, he doesn't have a pension. And do you have other stocks or investment? He said that he has tons of equity in his house, but that his company stock was all he had in terms of other investment. So I basically what I told him was to just forget about his mortgage for a second, what he was wanting to do or potentially contemplating selling part of the stock to pay his mortgage. I said, think about it this way. Your salary is dependent on your company and all your investments are also excluding your equity in your home are also dependent on this company. Now, what if something bad happens to the company and say you lose your job and, you know, because they're doing job cuts and consequently the stock is not doing well, it gets smashed. You responded that, well, it couldn't happen. 
I said, look, as unlikely it may be, it could still happen because you don't need to look very far. And I'm sure you've heard these stories before. If you just think back about General Electric, so GE, GE was once considered as blue chipper as you could find. I mean, if you go back about a decade ago, just ask, you know, if you ask people back then to name one blue chip company, I'm pretty sure GE's name would come up a whole lot. It may not be the only name, but that was, you know, even me, in my mind, that was a company that just, you know, instinctively was a blue chip name. And I remember reading several stories about employees that had been for with G forever and had accumulated large sums of G stock through a similar program, but never bothered to diversify because they thought nothing bad could ever happen to G. Well, those employees lost a whole lot of money in the last five years, and some even lost their jobs with GE. And you can just Google it. You'll find a whole lot of stories like that of employees specifically with GE that were in that unfortunate situation. So you probably guessed it. At this point, I basically said, personally, if I was in a situation, I would sell a very large portion of the stock that he had in the company and use that money to diversify out, whether it's an index fund or other stocks, probably an index fund because his knowledge of the stock market is not that great. And I just make sure to also do it in the most tax efficient way since it was not a registered vehicle. Now, no matter how great the company is, having all your eggs in one basket, salary investment is just a whole lot of risk, even as when you're looking at really good companies. And, you know, you can also translate that to other professions. I know like there's a lot of realtors that, you know, were getting their income from selling homes and they were also buying real estate. And I'm sure there are some right now that have no other investment that are in tough spots. So you have to be careful and make sure that you're prepared for the worst case scenario, because as unlikely as it may be, it can still happen. Three thoughts. One, I am very confident on the ticker okay, now. Okay. <laughs> I, I think I know. Don't say it. Well, within, no, no, I won't say it. I think I know within a 95% confidence interval here, the math is all checking out. Two, I've seen this countless, countless times. You know, you, you get Canadian blue chipper company or, you know, globally, you're in the US, whatever. And you work in there, you're getting the stock purchase program, like the employee purchase program, which is great, by the way. But you accumulate like so much of your net worth in the company stock and your employment, that's not like what people typically think of as having all your eggs in one basket. Usually they mean like your portfolio. This is like your life, your whole, like every egg is in that basket. So it's just kind of like risk management 101. I know it's become such a cliche, like, you know, eggs in one basket's become such a cliche thing. But I mean, there's merit to it, right? Like you can't have some black swan event just completely destroy you. And three, this goes back to what we've been talking about so much and what I'm going to be talking about again in this next segment, which is, yeah, GE. I mean, the blue chip of all blue chips, right? Like you couldn't get fired for buying GE back then. It was so diversified as well, like the actual business was. 
and still kind of is just not that great anymore. So yeah, it's, you have to value what you don't know because predicting the future is incredibly hard, especially in business because business is a very competitive game and things change. So, you know, I agree with this, especially if you've acquired tons and tons of company stock, you know, over a 30, 40 year career. I used to work at Magna. Okay. I knew people that had worked there for like 30 years and had literally millions and millions of dollars in the stock and like no other securities, like no other index funds, no other, like luckily the stock has basically matched the index during that whole time. But if it hadn't, Oh boy, that would be a recipe for disaster. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's also a confirmation bias, right? Because it's performed so well over long periods of time that people automatically think it's just going to keep happening this way. And unfortunately, that's not the reality. Things can happen. The G is just an example that made the news a whole lot. But I think it's great that you added, you know, just Magna here was in the same situation. So I think, you know, personally, I would definitely take advantage of these programs for sure. But when you can sell the stock, I mean, there's nothing wrong with keeping a small portion of it. That's fine. But definitely diversifying out. I think yeah, you'll be sleeping much better at night. You probably were, you know, some were probably sleeping well, but probably not realizing the amount of risk they were taking on. Because you got to think, right? Like, if you didn't work there, would you own a single share? In many cases, probably not, or, or at least maybe not. And so it's an interesting thought exercise. All right, let's talk about something I recently did uh, a couple days ago now, which is something that may come to as a shock to, to many people. And I'm going to explain my thought process. I was a little surprised when you texted me about it. Yes, yeah. well, of course, of course. I mean, just not too long ago, I was telling you about how I was adding shares. I recently trimmed my alphabet position, Google position, and here is why, okay? So before, you know, it sensationalize it, I'm still very long the stock. It is still a very large position for me. That context is incredibly important when you hear something like this. So I try to match my conviction for the business to be able to maintain their competitive advantage with portfolio concentration. I do my best to match my conviction with weighting of a position in my portfolio because my conviction for the business to be able to maintain its competitive advantage results in my conviction for them to be able to sustain wonderfully high returns on invested capital inside the business like Alphabet achieves. Now, the reality here for me is that the search engine optim sorry, the search engine results page, which is, you know, internet markers will we'll just refer to as the SERP, which is the search engine results page. When you type in Google and you type in the TCI podcast, what are the results that come up? That's the search engine results page. And this is where they make all of their operating income. I just don't believe that it's going to look the same in five years from now. My level of conviction to project the future of search has changed. Now, Google Cloud, the GCP, and YouTube are also fantastic businesses. 
lots of room to run and they have a lot of optionality. And currently where it stands, Google search is one of the best business models imaginable, regardless of what the future holds. So I still own a position. It's still a fairly large position. And this update will be reflected in my latest jointci.com portfolio turnover update in about 15 days or so. Here's where I'm going with this. Machine learning is already quickly changing people's habits with those who are early adopters to new artificial intelligence tools like chat GPT. All right. And it's not just like, oh, here's some new fancy thing. It's like they can't even run the demand for how much people want to use it. And it launched like what, a week and a half ago? Like probably they haven't disclosed it. It hit 1 million users in four days, I think four or five days. It got up to 5 million quicker than it hit one. And that was like over a week ago. I wouldn't be surprised if over 20 million daily actives are using this. There has been whispers that Google had a all hands on deck, like emergency meeting about like, what's the future of search? And there's a couple things here, right? Google is a powerhouse in artificial intelligence and machine learning. They 1 million percent have the ability to serve up a competing product that they probably already have and tie it into search right away. They already have the distribution, the data, the existing R&D, the computing infrastructure, the scale, the talent. And if they're able to navigate this as the winner and give people even better results using machine learning, they're going to be rewarded because they can maintain their high ROICs, the moat. And I am completely unconstrained as an investor where I can increase my position if my conviction changes again for the positive on this exact front. And they're already using tons of machine learning in the existing SERP. But the SERP, the search engine results page, will undoubtedly look different. And they have what is called an innovator's dilemma. If you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will, which is a Steve Jobs quote, which is, if you don't cannibalize yourself, someone else will. So this is a business and stock I speak incredibly high of. I talked about like two months ago, like on my watch list, like, I know everyone knows what this company is, but I'm buying more of it. And it's an investor's job to remain completely unbiased and change opinions and frameworks with presented new information and a different landscape. So I'm still long the stock, but I'm just committing to my the way I operate, which is matching my conviction to be able to determine the future with position weighting. And the SERP will look different in five to 10 years from now. That's what they're monetizing. It's not that they can't navigate around it, but I don't know what that looks like. And so that's the segment. No, no, it's. I think it's a good breakdown. I mean, you convinced me I'm selling my Google position. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, for me, it's... Uh, Just put in a sell yeah, order. No, for me, it's a, it's a much smaller position than Braden had. And I kind of saw that as an ad play, but obviously this would potentially affect the a lot of their ad business if it goes sideways. This is the ad business. Well, exactly. <laughs> so I think it's smart to probably just edge a little bit here and, you know, not having too many eggs in the basket for something that could be disrupted. And if it's not disrupted and they do, they are able to pivot, you'll probably still have enough of a position to benefit from it. That's right. Yeah. Like it's, it's went from like a top three or four position to top like 10. So, I mean, it's not like 
it's still quite in size. I'm long the stock. So I th- that context is incredibly important when talking about trimming something or, or selling something. Yeah. And we've talked about that a lot, right? We've done a couple episodes over the years about portfolio allocation. And now it's such an important tool to be able to mitigate risk that you might see in certain businesses and also reflect your conviction in the business. And I think that's what you did here. You saw some additional risk. So you're kind of mitigating that a little bit. Yeah. And New tech comes all the time and, you know, it's always, especially like how many times has the AI revolution come to like (laughs) my entire lifetime, I've been told AI is here or AI is there. It was the first time now that the general population is interacting with its greatness is within the last two months-ish. And 2023 is going to be the year of an absolute bubble in both private and public markets with artificial intelligence. Just wait. It's literally going to yeah. be the, it's going to be the NFT BS of all these companies being spun up that are just being run on top of the APIs of OpenAI and Stable Diffusion and stuff like that. Yeah, it's taking over the electric vehicle. You know, what was it a couple of years ago? The bubble with Nikola and all that? Yeah. Nikola and something Lucid Motors. Yeah, those were all zeros. Like, it was so Isn't obvious. Isn't he being sued or charged or something like that? I think the Nikola... Trevor yeah. Milton. Was it Trevor Milton? Yeah. Is that was it? yeah, Trevor Milton. I think he's being sued by the SEC or something. I remember seeing that. Nicola founder Trevor Milton found guilty of fraud. Found guilty. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Never mind. Found guilty of three counts of fraud. That's actually quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Don't worry, buddy. SBF will talk you on that. (laughs) I think he's up for like 12 counts of fraud or something. Oh, yeah. Something like that. And I mean, yeah, you don't want to be... And also defrauding the US government, which is never a great charge. And anyways, we've talked about that already. We won't go again, but <laughs> yeah. I'm sure yeah. we'll have some more news. It's going to be, a, especially when this goes to trial, it's going to be something else, I think. I'm just getting my popcorn ready for the documentary. <laughs> well, you know White there's going to be climb. a documentary and a full-on movie. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. a movie. Yeah, yeah. And a movie about the making of the movie. Dude, I absolutely love white collar crime documentaries because it just blows my mind how sociopathic some of these people are. It, it's actually just hard to comprehend. Yeah, no, exactly. So now I'll move on for a question from a listener. So a question from Amanda. So she was wondering if we could do a segment on tax implications of trading stocks. I've heard that stock held for a certain period of times are taxed differently than short-term Ownership, if you sell at a loss, are there tax implication? Does investment income affect your tax bracket? And she says that she's maxed out her TFSA, which, by the way, good for you, Amanda. And I'm in the lowest tax bracket and will remain there. So I don't see a benefit to a RRSP. So I have additional... Hey, by the way, Amanda, you mentioned low tax bracket, so the lower income. But maxed out her TFSA. Yeah, hey. well done. That's that's not easy to do. That requires a lot of savings, discipline, and great job. Yeah, and she said she has additional investment in an unregistered account. So oh, she's crushing. Couple, yeah, she's definitely absolutely crushing it. Doing very well here. I don't even have my TFSA maxed out, but I'm working on it. Well, first, I think 
just before I get started, this is just for information purposes, and obviously this is not investment or tax advice. Make sure you do consult a tax professional if you're seeking advice about your personal situation. Now that I've said that, I broke it down in about four parts because that's kind of what I got from your question here. So the first thing, for the taxes, if you hold a stock for a short period of time versus a long period of time, as far as I can see, there is no difference in Canada. I think where the confusion comes from is in the US if there is a short-term capital gains and a long-term capital gains. Essentially, if you hold a stock for less than a year, you have the short-term, which is taxed at a higher rate, and then the long-term capital gains if you hold a stock for more than a year. In Canada, capital gains tax happens when you sell a stock at a profit in a taxable account, so unregistered account. 50% of the capital gain is taxed at your income tax rate, at your marginal rate. For example, if you buy a stock at $100 and sell it for $150, you made a profit of $50, so 50% of this, or $25, will be added to your taxable income and taxed at your marginal tax rate. So the marginal tax rate, I know sometimes people are a bit confused by that, is just whichever rate you are at in Canada and you know in the US too, it's a progressive tax system, so usually what you'll have is the first like 13000 that you make it's tax exempt and then the next bracket so the next 13 to let's say 25 I'm just going on that will be taxed at 20% and then the next one so it's not like you have a whole rate what your employers will do is they'll kind of project what you'll make and they'll smooth that out on every pay so you have a consistent amount but that's important to understand because even if you jump a tax rate it's not like your whole income will be taxed at that rate it's just that extra amount I just wanted to clarify that before i get to the other points anything you wanted to add brayden no i'm good you're dealing let's keep going okay so if you sell stock at a loss in an unregistered account it means that you will have a capital loss which is the opposite of capital gains you can use that to reduce your capital gains and the nice thing about capital losses is you can carry it forward to another year indefinitely until you need it obviously that could always be changed in the future in the income tax act but that's how it stands right now you can also use the loss to offset gains during the three previous years, which is something I actually didn't know until I read about this. So I actually uh, learned a little bit as I was doing the research. And the last question I think that you had is, does investment income affect your tax bracket? Like I said, it could, but not necessarily. I wouldn't worry too much about it since it would be taxed at your marginal rate, like I just said. And Essentially, you know, if you do have capital gains, it's a good problem to have. I think that's one thing to remember. You know, I think you have to be careful sometimes with tax loss harvesting, which means you are at the end of the year. Like right now, you're looking at your portfolio. You're like, okay, I made some money this year on capital gains. What can I sell to offset it? That can be a bit of a tricky proposition because sometimes you may end up selling a company that's actually pretty good. It's just having a hard time. So I would just say if you do have capital gains in a year, it's just a, a good problem to have because you've done pretty well. This is good. I mean, again, this is your personal situation. Can't know for sure at what rates you know your your brackets in. I think for the most part, this is a good breakdown. The best part about the TFSA is that 
we just it's just a blanket statement like yes like yeah. use it <laughs> you know what I mean? you don't like, have to worry about any of this stuff <laughs> yeah it doesn't like i don't care what anyone's situation is use it and and use it for investing not for for cash not for just putting away cash in a you know quote-unquote savings account make sure it's an investment account no this is good i don't really have any more to add you know the tax taxation landscape how it mixes in with investments and everything else i get it it's a difficult landscape for like 99.9% of the population to navigate it is not clear it is not easy the documentation on how to how to actually like do it on your own from the gov is not easy to follow oh, whatsoever and so I, I totally get these questions. Yeah, the, the Income Tax Act is notoriously bad at like making things clear. And oftentimes you actually will find better information from like large accounting firms like Ernst & Young, for example, or KPMG, things like that, where they actually deal with clients and they'll have articles on, you know, where it's clear and easy to understand with some examples. And personally, I think there's nothing wrong with if you have, you know, pretty large amounts in a unregistered account, so you have some capital gains and your taxes start being somewhat complicated. I think, you know, especially if you have larger sums of money, personally, I think there's nothing wrong with just hiring someone to do your taxes. That's really good at doing that because at the end of the day, the cost may be offset with things that, you know, they might be able to make more efficient for you and reduce your taxes that you would not be aware of. And some of the software that you can buy to do your taxes, they're good. Don't get me wrong, but I think they do have some limitations too. Yeah, totally. Like I've always said, Getting someone to, excuse me, dude, my, I played hockey last night and I was the first time I had played a game in a while and I got like complete shock right now where it's like the cold air oh, mixing yeah. with the cardio and the, the kid is hurting this Coughing morning. blood almost. <laughs> Basically, Did you get yeah. It? It, like, Did you get hit? No, no, I was just breathing. No, no, I was just skating. Like, you know, how I'm so out of shape. No, I, I already lost. I completely lost what, I, what we were talking about, Mr. Belanger. It's okay. It's time for a transition. That's what it means. It's time for a transition, Amanda. You know, I choked on my, on my thought here. All right, let's talk about Terry Smith. Terry Smith on global investing. Terry Smith is a very famous investor, uh, runs something called Fundsmith, which is obviously an investment fund. And he's had lots of good nuggets through the years about long-term investing, buying high-quality companies. And it's the old adage that they have, which is, buy good companies, don't overpay, do nothing. That's their mantra. And so, I just pulled something here from a quote from Terry Smith on one of their investor letters. And I thought it was interesting for Canadians and everyone across the world to hear this talking about their strategy. We are global because they're from the UK. So they're the fund based in the UK. It says, we are global investors. The idea of having an investment fund restricted to UK equities strikes us as bizarre. Why should the best growth companies in the world be listed in a stock market based in a country which only ranks fifth in the world 
by size of its economy and is located on a small island off the coast of Europe. Another advantage of investing with a global perspective is the ability to contrast and compare growth rates and valuations of companies from all geographies. Some of the companies we seek to invest in derive a significant portion of their revenues from developing markets. This can enable us to obtain some of the benefits of developing markets exposure, mostly growth, while benefiting from the governance structure of a large international company, typically, but not always, listed on one of the world's major stock markets. This is brilliant because how often do we talk about this, right? It's like, there's nothing wrong with owning Canadian equities. And then, and, and Terry Smith's example, nothing wrong with owning UK equities. But the companies that we're trying to own that trade on those markets have exposure to global opportunities. You know, they, they might be based here in Canada or in the US or in the UK, but a lot of them have literally global opportunities in fast growing markets, but underneath the corporation with proper governance, not less bad actors and just well-known, well-capitalized businesses. And so I thought that this was particularly useful because you and I see Canadian home bias very rampant all the time. And the way Terry puts it, he goes, why should the best growth companies in the world be listed in a stock market in a country which only ranks fifth in the world by the size of its economy? And he's talking about the UK there. And it's true. Statistically, they don't exist there. They're, they're usually listed on major US exchanges or major global stock markets. So I thought it was an interesting little takeaway here. Yeah, no, I think it's a great reminder. I mean, even, you know, UK, which is much bigger in terms of its stock market than Canada. And I think it's just a good reminder, unless you're American, which I think it's fine to have home country bias at that point, because you have so many securities that are listed in the US, you even have foreign companies that are listed in the US. So it's it's much different situation than pretty much any other stock market in the world. And I always remember I had someone I was talking about Canadian home country bias. And I think it was on Twitter and someone's just responded, well, you know, I have like 75% of my portfolio in Canadian stocks because I just know the companies better. And my answer would be like, well, just learn American companies better. Like, Also, that's a load of shit, yeah, though. Like, it's just I don't think that's a great argument because with the resources out there, I think it's just very easy to just learn about you know, companies outside of Canada, yes, you may not encounter them as frequently as, you know, if you're a TD Bank customer, yeah, clearly you'll probably know TD Bank a little bit because... But I am willing to bet with complete confidence that that person interacts with US-based companies more than Canadian companies in their daily Oh, life. yeah, probably. But I guess... One million percent. You know, they used Google Maps to go to sure their Canadian bank while they work there and work on a Microsoft suite for eight hours a day. Like these are, it's an American, you know, it's an American business economy we live in. No, no, I mean, I totally get it. I didn't think it was a great argument, but I think it's just a, a good <laughs> reminder. I'm like roasting you for yeah, someone else's thing. I think thing. it's just maybe, <laughs> I don't know if there's a comfort level, but if that's, if the whole reason you're mainly overly concentrated in Canada is comfort level, then, you know, get out of your comfort zone and, you know, explore a little <laughs> bit, you know, as yeah, I think that's the only way I can put it. 
I love yeah. it. And then I just pulled up here. You go on stratosphere.io and you type in Terry Smith because you can type in any famous investor and you'll see their top holdings. Let's look at his top holdings here. Microsoft, Philip Morris, and this is going from largest position to smallest. Microsoft, Philip Morris, Estee Lauder, ADP, IDEX, Pepsi, Stryker, McCormick, Visa, Waters, Brown Foreman, Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, Intuit. Mettler Toledo, Church and Dwight, hey, yo. Adobe, <laughs> hey, yo. Adobe, Nike, PayPal, Otis Worldwide, the elevator company, Verisign, Sabre, Fortinet, and Massimo Corp. A lot of quality in here. Props. A lot of... Props to Terry for Lion King is Armin, ha- Armin Hammer. <laughs> exactly. You recognize some Armin yeah. Hammer. If people are wondering, I think it's it's good. You'll know on December 29th what we're talking about. Little, little preview. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. You got to listen to the, the episode dropping on November 29th. That's a high quality portfolio, man. Mm-hmm. Just looking like global, wide moat. Some names I know a little bit less for sure. Like some of them are, you know, obviously mega caps and some of them are smaller mid caps as well. But global... Global businesses, this is a UK-based firm. I don't see any bias here, which is nice. Yeah, no, definitely. And I mean, I think it looks like he, they invest in, you know, there might be some companies that are a bit more growth, a smaller percentage, smaller allocation companies. Some of them I'm not very familiar with. VeriSign, I'm, I know, but they. it's kind of interesting to look at the percentage too, where, you know, the big Big allocation is probably, I would say, in the top 15 names, 5, 15, 20. And then there's yeah. kind of a sharp drop off for the the last four. Yeah, like there's like 12-ish names that all have a 4% portfolio yeah. allocation. So it's pretty concentrated. Well, even if you're looking at 2%, right after Otis, it really drops off like pretty big. Yeah. yeah. Verisign. Buffett's owned Verisign for ages, I'm pretty sure. Could be. I don't know. (laughs) Check that. Thanks for listening to the pod. We appreciate you. I am going to hand it off now to an interview, a short interview I did with Mahima Podar, who is one of the execs at EQ Bank. We're going to talk about their newest launch in Quebec. People in Quebec... If you have not, there's a reason you haven't been hearing the EQ Bank ads because we've been restricting them from delivering in Quebec, but they just launched in Quebec. So I use it, Simone, you use it, EQ Bank. People, I know it's funny because, you know, when we talk about sponsors for the show and then you talk to like listeners and they're all like, oh yeah, I use it, but like, I love it. And so EQ Bank is, is killing it. Here is my interview with their plans for next year and the exciting launch in Quebec for EQ Bank. We appreciate everyone listening to the show. We are here Mondays and Thursdays all through the holidays. And some of our best content is coming out through the holidays. I guarantee you'll enjoy the episode that you and I recorded yesterday. It was quite fun. And we'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. TCI podcast listeners, we have our fourth interview with Mahima Podar from EQ Bank of 2022. And I'm very glad to have you back, Mahima. This has now been the fourth time we've done it this year and just watching EQ Bank kind of evolve. And congratulations now launching in Quebec. It's a big milestone. 
Thank you. No, we really appreciate the support from the listeners. And yeah, we're really excited to be in Quebec now. That's great. So tell me a little bit about that process. Now, obviously, I guess out of just my own curiosity, why is it that there had to be a delay in different jurisdictions for banking? Can you give me like a kind of a high level on how that works? I mean, I think the the simplest answer is it's significantly more complex to work in two languages, to be quite transparent. And the other reality is that Quebec is under just such a different regulatory landscape that when you're operating with bank accounts and banking products, the amount of nuances that are different for Quebec creates a significant amount of build when we're going into that province. So that was our hesitation, if you will. But it's been hard to ignore just how vibrant a population there is in Quebec, how active the savings community is. And then transparently, what we keep hearing from potential customers is that there is this real demand or like want for EQ Bank in Quebec. And so it's hard to, you know, continue to deny what we believe to be a much better product to the whole province of Quebec. And so we kind of, you know, jumped in and took the complexity investment to make it work. But we're really excited that we're now in Quebec. And what what we've done is launch with our most favored products, if you will. So the ones that have gotten the highest response from customers. So we have that benefit of testing in the in the English speaking markets to launch best of breed in Quebec now. That's smart. Take everything you learn. I mean, I personally use it every single week without a doubt and simone has as well and my family like my mom i like i've told you before my mom's been the earliest adopter to eq bank so mom is my favorite. <laughs> yeah yeah so no that's great and because we've gotten lots of listeners being like i know you guys actually use it beyond just them being a sponsor so when they come to quebec we'll be first to sign up so well, that's exciting let's talk moving into 2023 What's next for EQ Bank? What's on the docket in terms of features and strategy? And what should I get excited about? So there's probably two things that I should probably keep quiet, but one is- <laughs> But instead, in- you're going to announce it on I'm a gonna announce it. giant Canadian that. podcast. Yeah. <laughs> one is our card product is launching early January. So we're really excited about that because that has been a labor of love for almost two years now, but it will give customers cash access to the funds in their account. They can obviously use it in store for e-commerce with rewards built in. So we're really excited about that coming to market. And then there's a whole slew of features. Would that be a debit or a credit card or both? It's a hybrid debit credit card, if you will. So it's more of a prepaid card. It'll use the funds on the card, but because it's a MasterCard, you can use it for e-commerce or point of sale. So it's not as limiting as debit, but... The big advantage is you can use it at any ATM in Canada for no fees. So it doesn't matter oh, which really? you're wow. going to. Yeah. So you're not looking. This was a big thing for our customers in Quebec as well, is you don't need to go find a certain bank ATM. You can use it at any ATM in Canada and we will reimburse all the fees back. Unreal. Okay, cool. So yeah, because that to me, that seems like the one thing that I do like financial wizardry around because right now I keep like all of my 
dry powder in terms of cash and emergency fund in EQ Bank with one of the products or usually just the savings plus account. And then, you know, I got to move stuff out and around because I don't have an actual card I can use. So that seems like a logical next step. All right, cool. One more thing you, you mentioned too. Two is that we are working on a small business product. So what we found is that almost 10% of our customer base is part of the gig economy or has a small business or a side business. And so there is a considerable amount of disdain in the market with the options that are available for digital banking and the fees that are tied to it, plus the lack of interest earning options. So we are on a quest to extend the best of EQ Bank for retail customers now to the small business segment. That is music to my ears. Again, I sound like I'm just saying this, you know, I'm like trying to please the EQ Bank here on the podcast, but I run two small businesses and I would like to have another option because last week I waited on hold with a Canadian big bank to do a very, very simple business transaction that, you know, you'd hope your business bank a couple hundred billion in market cap would be able to do. And I waited on hold for a combined four hours across those two oh, those two calls. It's so exactly I don't want that to happen anymore. You know, like paying taxes to the CRA from a small business is so painful. It's those things that people have to do every day, every week that we're trying to create much more seamless experiences for. I love it. Mahima, thank you so much for the update. I'm looking forward to those things mentioned in 2023. It's like you guys asked me what the product roadmap should be because those, those, are, those <laughs> are the two things that I find would add a lot of value. And best of luck. Have a great uh, holidays to you as well. Thank you. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.